Happy New Year to you. What's up, Rip Joel? It's good to see you. And that means we've got an obligatory resolution introduction on the sermon today. I'm sorry, it's a rule. It's part of uh, Sermon Giving 101. So today I will highlight the progression of the plan of making a New Year's resolution. Are you ready? The secret is as follows. I don't see any pencils out, but just remember it. Then here we go. First, number one, step one, finish the previous year. Done. You did it. Well done. Number two, make your goal, your wish, your resolution. Done. Good. Number three, start them. Number four, this is where it gets difficult, continue them. Number five, hope for the best. Number six, change, adapt, improvise. Number seven, after five days, decide to make the trade to win it all and go for it. Or enter into the rebuild mode for the rest of 2023 and look forward to 2024. I don't know if any of that will work, but do with it what you will. Wouldn't you know it, though, in today's text, the Apostle Paul highlights the progression of God's resolution, his restorative plan for us in Jesus, from a slave to a child to receiving his very own spirit to becoming an heir. So this time, really, pencils, pens, whatever it is you choose to write with, pull out those Bibles. We're going to break down some of Galatians chapter 4 today. If you didn't bring your Bible, it's there on the back of that uh, uh, order of service you got when you walked in. And of course, it'll be on the screens as we go through this together. But here we go. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the people of uh, in Galatians here, uh, chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, the idea behind the phrase, the set time had fully come, is when the time was right. See, Jesus came at the right time in God's redemptive plan, when the world was perfectly prepared for God's work. But you may be asking yourself, well, what made it the right time? Was it something that people were doing? Was it because of the time that the, uh, the Pax Ramona, the peace of the Roman Empire, had extended over most of the civilized earth and that travel and commerce were possible in a way that had formerly never been possible because of those great roads of the Caesars? Was it because of the diverse regions finally had a way of communicating because of the widespread language of the Greeks? Was it because the world was sunk in such a moral abyss, was so low that everyone cried out and had a spiritual hunger that it finally hit that peak that God said, oh, this is it, this is the time? Was it because of the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9 was suddenly drawing to a close? Perhaps it's not surprising that our first guess, or at least mine, was to focus on what seemed to be the factor that the world would be the one responsible for the time being fully set. But the focus shouldn't be on how or when the world was set to receive Christ. But rather, the focus that we are to see in this declaration from the apostle here is that God the Father has sent his Son, sent Christ into time, that's what the focus is here. He's not spending time discussing why it was the right time. And if we can move past that why this time and we dig a little bit more down to the root, it might be that our concern isn't really about timing. It's about waiting. The question is, why did God wait to send his son until this moment in time? You go one step further. Why is God waiting 
to return? Why doesn't he just come now? You go one step further. Why does he make me wait? Maybe you got a little bit of too much Ningo Montoya in you. Remember when the dread pirate Roberts is climbing up the cliffs of insanity? Did you say it with me in the voice? Nobody did? Okay, that's fine. Well, to, to catch you up in the movie, this is an amazing movie. I'm going to break it down for you right here. Ningo is asking the dread pirate Roberts to hurry up because he's waiting. Now, he's going to kill him, but he's tired of waiting. So he says, can you speed it up? And he says, no, you're just going to have to wait. That's the whole scene. You can see why I used it. <laughs> but downloading, researching things, the self-discipline, the making of resolutions. I want a resolution that requires no work. It just happens. No waiting. Because it's difficult to wait. And if you go one more step, it's difficult to have hope while you're waiting. And one step further, it's hard to believe when God makes us wait. I've heard it said that, don't you think it's strange if God knows my address, if he knows where I am, what's he waiting for? Why doesn't he just show up? Then I'll believe, then I'll do what he asked me to do. For any of us who have spent time in the bondage of sin or addiction and want to be free, it seems confusing that God would wait and not intervene immediately. Anybody who has had to wait for their cure, anybody who has waited for that call back, you say, God, what are you waiting for? And your text's response for waiting and the why is just this. It happens at the right time. In other words, God's in control, not us. And I'm sorry that I don't have those answers about why God waits, but I can make an observation that it would seem in that waiting that every moment of time is valuable to God because any and every moment can be filled with wonder, with awe, with miracles, with love. Every person, every conversation, every encounter is an opportunity in the waiting to perhaps draw closer, to perhaps make amends, to perhaps find humility. Perhaps it's an opportunity in the waiting to grow, to change. Perhaps it's an opportunity in the waiting to see who God really is. And that's what I love about this text today because it's, it's only three sentences long, but there is such amazing theology and promises in this little section of Scripture. Take, for example, this, God sent his son born of a woman. That's a beautiful statement on how Christ Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, which is an important belief in Christianity. It was one of the driving forces behind the very last two creeds that we learned, the ninth scene in the Athanasian. He's not born of a man or born of a human, but he's born of a woman, which is so interesting. Are you thinking about how in First John, or in John chapter 1, uh, the apostle wrote, Yet to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Or were you looking back even further, remembering that it was Eve, a woman, who ate the apple and brought sin into this world? Of course, we're ignoring the fact that Adam was literally hiding right behind her as she ate, saying nothing until it was like, yeah, I'll have a bite of that. But she was the one, the first one to sin. She's the one who brought death into the world. Yet in the fullness of time, it's a woman who brought life into the world. 
That's why her name was changed to Eve, mother of the living. Because every human being who will ever live will be born of a woman. And thanks be to God that a young virgin woman named Mary, when asked, said, let it be just as you have said, because born to us was Jesus, this child who brings life eternal. Writing that he was sent from God, born of a woman, is Paul's way of saying here, we have God's son and human born who is fully God and fully man. But I know you're wondering again, how does it work? Well, it's not logical. It's not a philosophical stance. It's not he was 50-50 or sometimes he was God and sometimes he was man or he was God except when he died. At that point, he was man. I can tell you, after three credits and a semester class in pastor school, exactly how it works. Are you ready? It's a mystery. There you go. I just saved you four grand, bro. But again, if you get caught in the details, you miss the big verb in the sentence, sent, that God sent his son to us with a purpose. And what that means is that we have a God who chooses not just the time, but chose to come himself to be with us. He does not look at us as unworthy or not worth it or a waste of his time, but he looks at us as people worth fighting for, people worth everything. What's the saying that the secret to governance upon the earth is that the human life must figure as nothing while heaven sets the worth of a soul at everything. You may just be a number to the world, but the Lord himself, he knows you. The Lord himself chose to stand with you, chose you, and is with you every step of the way. And you go a little further and Paul writes that this son born to us was born under the law. And you can do a little bit of homework on your own reading Hebrews, specifically chapters 9 through 13, to get a little background here. But I'm going to do my best to summarize it because I know you won't. Just kidding, you will. But mankind needed to obey the law. The Mosaic law, yeah. But also we realize that all people are under the law, whether they're born a Jew or not. Paul mentions this at the beginning of Romans, that we are all under a law. By looking at the Mosaic law, we realize that all of us have sinned. But if you don't, if you're just a Gentile, the same goes for you for two reasons, he says. God has written every law on our heart, and the very laws that we give ourselves, we break. So the summary of being born under the law, which we all are, is that none of us are righteous. No, not one. And if sin happens, if the law is broken, the result is that blood must be shed. For Leviticus 17 states, the life of the creature is in the blood. And it is the shedding of the blood on the altar that makes atonement for life. And that sounds pretty harsh. It is harsh. What do you mean, preacher man, that I'm a sinner? What do you mean that I deserve death, that my blood must be shed? What's this whole thing about blood and laws and rules? I don't want to hear about that. I don't even know what that is. This is the kind of stuff I don't like to tell people because this is the stuff that's uncomfortable and weird and, and not good. But the truth is that this stuff, this blood and death, this breaking of rules, this sin is real. Each one of us sitting here are guilty of sinning, of hurting, of doing wrong, just like every other person who has ever lived. And the consequence of your sin and mine is death and the shedding of blood, not to mention the ones that we live with the pain, the suffering that we cause ourselves and others and this entire planet because of sin, where the consequences of sin are just as real 
and have a lasting effect. So God sends his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to this world to be among us and redeem us. And here's where we get some of that fantastic theology. Because isn't it fascinating that Christ's enemies during his life, nor even the critics who are writing today, can ever prove Jesus Christ of sin? It's one of my favorite parts in the Gospels when he asks, which one of you can accuse me of sin? Can you imagine the audacity of someone standing up and saying, who among you can prove me of sin? It'd take a 10-second dive at your social media to be like, got you. (laughs) Or how about you married folks? Anybody as a spouse stand up and say, can you accuse me of sin, my love? No, we would never do that. Yet Christ was without sin. He was perfect. He fulfilled the law. Every dot and iota of it, not one sin. How? Because he was fully God, able to do it, and fully man, to make sure that it counted for us. And just so you think I'm not making this up, there are a lot of verses to support this. Here's one from Hebrews. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. I love this because we have a God who understands us. We have a God who sees us. And we have a God who acts for us and does what we cannot do. Second Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He sends his son to be the sacrifice for us that by the shedding of his blood, And as a result of Christ dying for us, he received death and we received life. He received our sin and we received his grace and his mercy and are covered. He was loved and now so are we. He was sent to redeem us. And this is a resolution worth making to remember this each and every day that Jesus Christ has died for me. So that the things and the, 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 the workings of this world that try to separate me from God will have no power over me. We sit here today convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, neither a good GPA or a bad, neither being homeless or living in a mansion, neither today or tomorrow, neither addiction nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the truth, that in Jesus Christ and by no other person, no other works, no other good tries or good wishes are we saved. But by Him alone, who, as it says in Galatians 4 here, when the said time had fully come, came to redeem us under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Will you throw up the Galatians verse for me? See, in this redemption, we receive the adoption as children. I think it would have been enough if he just would have purchased us out of the slavery sin, but God's work doesn't end there. He elevates us to the place of sons and daughters of God by adoption. 
And as every human being is a child of God made in his image, yet not every uh, human being is a child of God in the sense of this close adoptive relationship that we have received in our baptism, received by faith in Christ Jesus through his work alone. Did you know in the Roman custom of adoption, adopted sons were given absolutely equal privileges in the family and an equal status as an heir. So what we find in this blessing from God is that, yes, he's given us forgiveness and salvation in Christ Jesus, but the true and deep love for us he takes even further by making us family, completely family, receiving adoptions. This means that we have it better than Adam did in the garden. Adam was never a child of God. You're not out there trying to recover what it is that you've lost. You have been given it in Jesus himself. You belong to him, his family. The text continues and says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. We know that we are the sons and daughters of God by the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. God's purpose to secure our adoption by his son Jesus was to give us his spirit so that by our very lives we would know, yes, I am a child of God. We could experience that life of being a child of God. That's what gives us that right, that ability to cry out, Abba, to God our Father, like Jesus did. Now, some think translating that idea of Abba as Daddy is just a little bit too intimate, even improper, not to mention for how the word it's used in some circles. It may make us not want to call that to God at all. But the early church fathers, especially the ones who lived where Aramaic was spoken and who had Aramaic-speaking nurses in their childhood, testified that Abba is the address of a small child to their father. It is daddy. It's that intimate word used in the family circle. And the point being here is that you have access to the same intimacy with God the Father that Jesus had. You get to pray like Jesus did. You get to wait, knowing that the Father is with you, alongside you. It is yours. Look what it says. You get to call out, to cry out. You don't whisper, Daddy, as if we're hesitant to speak to him, unsure of where we stand with him. We cry it out. We call to him with boldness, especially when we're waiting. I think about when my little baby has a bad dream. She doesn't whisper, Daddy. She cries it out. Because crying is her sign of certainty, her unwavering confidence that when she screams, I'm going to come running. We cry out. And the Lord hears us because we are his children. It is intimate. It is personal. It is real. You are not some slave who can get exchanged for the next one or upgraded or done away with when your work here is done. You are part of the family of God. Heirs means that you inherit something. And Paul makes it very clear what you inherit. You inherit God himself. You inherit God to live in you, to be his. 
For in Jesus, we are included in the family of God. And in that inclusion comes a, a new transformative reality. A new way of living. A new way of praying. A new way of being. That is what you have. That is what we have. As brothers and sisters who are included and share in the love of Jesus that transforms us brings us peace, brings us joy, brings us hope, brings us purpose. So I pray that 2023 is a year that you experience the presence of God in your life, that each and every moment of each and every day, you know exactly whose family you belong to, whose you are, because you are loved and you are chosen by God. You are His.